Welcome to the Resilient Training Lab Podcast. Welcome to our next episode of the Resilient Training Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, here with Coach Paul and also Eric. So welcome, guys. Thank you. Glad to be back on. Yes, Eric is uh, one of our favorite guests. And today... We're going to get to talking about how do we know what we know. So this is a pretty nuanced topic. We're going to start out with some definitions of some words that are going to come up throughout the course of the episode. Paul's got a really nice analogy that I think we'll be able to reference back to as the episode goes on so that we can start to draw some parallels between the analogy, the fitness world, and the physical therapy world. So Paul, you want to hit us up with that ship analogy? Yeah, so we're going to kind of be talking about how it's our duty to provide the best information possible. And Derek Miles uses this ship example that I think kind of really drives the point home. And you have this guy and he owns a shipping company and he has this ship that he knows is just, you know, not put together great. It's real rickety. But he, you know, buys insurance and starts selling tickets and people have this voyage that they go across this big journey and he sends them on the rickety ship and the ship sinks, right? And everyone would agree that that guy's an asshole and, you know, he collects his insurance money and he didn't really care about the people that he put on the ship because he knew he would get paid either way, right? But if we have that same story, guy has the rickety ship and... This time the ship actually makes it. Is the guy still an asshole? He put the people's lives at danger, but they didn't actually get hurt. So what do you think there? But what if he like didn't even ex- inspect the ship? He just took the seller's word for it. He was like, oh, the seller told him, oh, this is a fine ship. And, and he just took the seller's word for it and then started selling tickets for a ship. What about, what about that situation? Is that you know make him a bad person? I think the big moral of the story is that we don't want to be push, putting our clients on rickety ships. We want to be making sure that the ships we put on our clients, because we are leading them on a journey, are safe and sound. Yeah. So I think when we reference back to this analogy, what we're looking at is, is it the responsibility of the person who owns the ship to make sure that it is safe to transport these people And if he doesn't research the safety level of this ship, does it all come back to him? And so the parallel that we see with the fitness world is the trainer has the responsibility to make sure that they are giving their clients the tools that they need to be successful. They are putting them onto a safe ship rather than a rickety ship. And I think we could also see some parallels with the physical therapy world. So Eric, in terms of a physical therapist, what would be the comparisons you would use to apply this analogy? Um, so what would be the, the rickety ship in your perspective? Yes, I suppose that would be any, any intervention we would provide for the patient in front of us. And I guess I think for these analogies, physical therapy and strength and conditioning parallel pretty well. It's just perhaps the stakes are a little bit higher in physical therapy because of just the role of the healthcare provider and what we're we're working with in terms of pain or dysfunction of some sort versus perhaps more health and wellness directed goals. So the 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 analogy works in both settings, but 
basically I, I would say that the stakes are, are a little bit higher in the, in the physical therapy realm, but the, the ship itself, I mean, that could be any intervention that we choose to do, whether that's patient education or uh, and a selected exercise for a specific reason or some other, maybe a little bit more of a passive modality like dry needling, the responsibility falls on the clinician to know what the risk and benefits are and what the effectiveness and other stuff that we're going to talk about in a little bit is regarding that and so on. Yeah. So again, back in this ship analogy, let's say that this individual wants to have his ship inspected, but he hires, you know, the the Yelp of ship inspectors and they're just going to give him a passing rating as long as he gives them money and they actually don't know anything else about the, the safety of this ship. So that would be sort of a lower quality way to justify what he knows of the safety of his ship versus spending a ton of money to have it properly analyzed by somebody who knows the ins and outs of the exact model of ships that he has, which would be a very high quality, I guess, high quality, right? Uh, to know that the ship that he's putting people on are safe. And so when it comes to trainers producing programs for their clients or a physical therapist having a plan of treatment for their patient, we really need to take a look at how we're justifying what it is we're having these people do. We need to make sure that the ship is sturdy, the ship is safe, or the program is efficacious. Is that the word that we're going to yep. okay. use today? So that's that's how you say it, too. Good job. Uh, Good job. Yeah. <laughs> we're wearing over our head with all the, the E's and the F's and the C's today. Yeah. All right, so we're looking at how efficacious of a justification we're using. So, Paul, you have some definitions, right? Yeah, so when we kind of look at any research or any method that has been researched, you can kind of look at its effectiveness or its efficacy. So when you're looking at efficacy and effectiveness, these two words are often interchanged and they do actually have like slightly different meanings. And when we're looking at uh, specifically in terms of like research and effective study, we're looking at kind of a study that is more applicable to the real world and has kind of less confounding factors and less stringent inclusion for the study and just kind of is going to look at a more kind of real life application, whereas an efficacy-based trial is going to be more stringent and it's going to be more in like that research setting where you have where you kind of have that random controlled trial that you're used to seeing where they're controlling for all the other variables and they're testing against a placebo. So that's going to be the big difference there. And we'll talk about some pros and cons and talk about how that applies to everything. Awesome. So Eric, when you're looking at new research in the physical therapy world, are you specifically looking for examples of efficacy? It depends on where we're at in terms of that intervention or whatever we're talking about in the scenario. So just to rewind a little bit, going back to the ship analogy, the the point of that analogy is what is the responsibility of that person in terms of, you know, knowing if that ship is rickety or not. And what we do to find that out is we read research articles and talk to other people and we formulate an opinion on, on what's going on. And, and we try to keep that grounded in some level in science because that gives us better confidence to basically be less wrong. And so science goes through sort of a process, especially in this world of health and fitness and physical therapy, where the first question we want to ask is, is this 
thing that we're doing safe? And then the next question we might want to say is, is it efficacious? So does it work in a controlled setting? So that's, and then the next step after that would be more like, is it effective to say what's normally being performed instead of that? So does it work in a more of a general sense? Um, and then we could ask, is it effective in various populations? So can I use this intervention with different people in different scenarios? So when you say like, when I read research and do I look for if something's has good efficacy versus effectiveness, it depends where it is on that spectrum. You know, so some stuff like exercise, for example, there's a lot of research on that already. So rather than see if something has good efficacy, I might want to know it's effective for me to use with a lot of different people that might walk through the door. We've kind of already established in some level that in a semi-controlled manner, as much as you can control exercise research, it could be effective for uh, a couple different conditions. And then we might want to know, or it has efficacy for a couple different conditions. And then we want to know if that is now effective in the clinic. And then we want to know if that's effective uh, with different people that might have the same condition. So it's complicated. Right. And so when it comes to this analogy of, again, just the rickety ship and it being the responsibility of the owner of the ship to make sure that it is safe for these people to travel on, or it is the responsibility of the trainer and the physical therapist to make sure that what they're asking their client or patient to do is both appropriate, effective, and safe for the person to do. We can kind of run into a scenario where when we're combing through the evidence, another analogy that's going to illustrate this is uh, let's say we have a group of people who are looking at four identical brown socks and or they're being told left and right, you know, sock number one is going to be a lot softer than the rest or sock number three is browner and has a better quality of a color. Um, and, and they're forced to argue over which of the four socks is going to be the best one. And they do this and they come to their own conclusions about which sock is the best. And then it's revealed to them that all four socks are exactly the same. And some people, when they're presented with that scenario, are willing to accept that they were inaccurate with their information. They didn't justify the awesomeness of their sock based off of something that was factual. And there are others who will argue tooth and nail that their sock is in fact different, even when presented with evidence of the contrary. And so I think that's something that we see a lot of in both physical therapy and the fitness world where there might start to be some new evidence or some information coming out that contradicts some beliefs that are held very close to either a clinician or a trainer's heart. And they have a very difficult time coping with that and sort of letting what they once thought to be true go and uh, reassimilate new knowledge into their practice or their protocols. Yeah. So that's kind of just one of our human biases. And even more so if you have four identical socks that you don't even say there's anything different. You just say, hey, pick one of these four socks and someone picks it. They're going to defend why they picked it to, to you know, to their grave when you tell them that they're all the same socks. They'll, they'll try and tell you that they're, they're not and they'll make up a story about why they picked that sock. And so confabulation is what it's called. And it's just one of the things our human mind does. So it's something that we need to be aware of and actively trying to push against because if we just go about our day and don't really think about it, we'll, we'll fall into this trap a lot. So we have to be 
kind of aware of our thinking, thinking about our thinking. So when you're faced with new information, you have to be able to question your current beliefs and look at how that new information can be integrated into your current belief process. Because at the end of the day, people are coming to us as authority figures and looking to us for answers to their questions. And as Eric said, in the physical therapy world, the stakes are a little bit higher. But in the strength and conditioning world, the stakes are still pretty high because, you know, one of the leading cause, well, the leading cause of death in America is cardiovascular disease. And exercise is one of the shown to be one of the best things you can do. Yet only about 18.6% of Americans meet the exercise guidelines. And if we aren't doing our job to the best of our abilities, we are increasing the barrier of fitness and making it less likely that people will stick around in the long run and exercise for the rest of their life. Yeah, there's a lot of research looking at what are the most common barriers to increasing physical activity or exercise because they are slightly different um, exercise being more structured and physical activity can include things like knee and, and exercise. But regardless of what population you look at, when you look at barriers to exercise, the two biggest ones are either there's not enough time to do it, which I think all three of us hear often, or people are just too tired to, to get themselves to do it. So the, the reason why this stuff that we're talking about is important is because we want to choose things that have good efficacy and effectiveness because that helps fight against those two barriers. I don't want to do a bunch of stuff that's going to eat up time if it's not going to get us the biggest bang for our buck. You know, we want to do things that are going to have the best return on investment, so to speak, because those are your biggest barriers. So you don't want to spend two hours training if you can get just as good benefits from, you know, cutting out some of the fluff and doing that same session in under an hour or something like that. You know, that's, I think, something that comes up a lot in this podcast is, you know, trying to use research to guide decision-making processes so you don't go too far down a rabbit hole of, of something that doesn't have good efficacy, even if it seems like it might have been effective for somebody. Yeah, we really do try and focus on maximizing return on investment of the amount of time somebody's spending in the gym. But these are all standards that we set for ourselves. We seek out this information to try and hold ourselves accountable to provide the highest quality product that we can without any oversight. And so there are plenty of places that don't do that or plenty of trainers who aren't forced to. There's no position stance written out from a governing body. There's no board overseeing your personal trainers. You know, a lot of these weekend certifications are you know, the only thing you have to have to get it is money. It's not even like you're learning that much. You don't even yeah. need a certification anymore, man. You just need a big total and a six pack. Seen, yeah, that's true. Instagram, hit me in the DMs, bro. <laughs> have a link in your bio for sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's really, there's no, there's no standards. You know, it's, it's the wild west in the, in the fitness industry. It's pretty crazy what people are out there preaching to their audiences of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. It's, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. I think a lot of people probably get information on what they're doing, like, like trainers through social media and ends up just becoming kind of like you're listening to gurus. And so you, you tend not to kind of question them as much as you, as you should. And that becomes a slippery slope of, you know, just kind of listening to people that just give you confirmation bias. So it becomes an echo chamber and you see these 
these like areas develop where, where this group of people gets married to this one style of training or this one type of, you know, exercise selection. And then, you know, we'll, we'll kind of try to pull up and see if there's any validity to that. And it's just not out there. So it's like, why, why is this thing picking up so much momentum? There's, there's just not any efficacy to support it, first of all, let alone determining if it's really effective. And then um, I think the rebuttal that we typically get back is you guys want to fill in the blank. What happens when, you know, you say, well, where's the research to support that? <laughs> right. You know, my, my, my technique's just too new. They, they too sophisticated for them to research. So you'll always be behind if you stick with the research. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, that's the gist of it. You know? <laughs> and that's, it's just, it's kind of bullshit. That's a lazy, that's a lazy answer. Cause there's, there is a lot of research. There's no governing, not as big of a governing body. And strength and conditioning, but you know the NSCA does put out decent position statements for certain broad stuff like U sports, or there's other position statements uh, on like training during pregnancy. They're, you know these broad concepts, but they're not always like super applicable. Like, what am I going to do with the person in front of me? But there's a, there's a lot of research out there. It's just maybe the people don't know how to access it. You know, because it is hard to kind of access peer reviewed publications, or maybe they don't. It's hard to read them too. It's a skill that you have to develop to be able to read research. You know, so. But just saying that the research isn't caught up, I think that's a bit of a lazy, lazy answer. And that just gets fed in by the social media guru system that is like forever evolving. Yeah, it almost even worse than just the guru. It turns into like a telephone game of what the gurus say, because the trainers just feed it to each other and it gets even more and more skewed as it goes along. Right. (laughs) So it's like if we were to build off of that rickety ship example, it's like if all these people are sending out rickety ships, (laughs) you know, and and nobody's like, like, wait a second, you know, what's going on with these ships here? It's because they, they make it across the journey um, and all's well that ends well, doesn't mean that that was the the best way to to do it. Right. That's the, that was the philosophical question. I think that, you know, when you're using uh, Derek's example there, it gets that like if the ship breaks down, everyone's going to say that guy's an asshole for selling tickets to get on a crappy ship. But if the ship makes it across and all's well, that ends well, nobody really even knows to question if that guy's an asshole. And when you see a rickety ship go down, they all jump from one rickety <laughs> ship and, oh, that one didn't sink. So I'm going to go on that one now. And you just get a bunch of people jumping from rickety ship to rickety ship. Exactly. <laughs> where nobody's making progress. Well, and the thing is, right. 82% of them are sinking because 82% of Americans aren't exercising. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> and then- That's true. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's a perfectly fine ship that just, I guess, doesn't look as sexy or something. <laughs> so nobody wants to get on it, right? Yeah. But they were just delaying. We're going on the side of it. That's true. Yeah. It just needs to be rebranded. <laughs> Wasn't there a study that just came out recently that actually said research is like 14 years ahead of common practice or something around there? <laughs> I don't know. It wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me. Um, you know, like you're saying that it takes 14 years for research to go from being completed to put into practice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and, but we also hear like, so what Eric was just talking about with people talking about how there's not research available, you'll also hear at the same time, you could find research to, to support everything. And so I think that's why we're having this conversation is because if, you know, somebody cherry picks a couple of studies that were, you know, self-selected surveys from 50 years ago, promoting the effectiveness of whatever x or y that that shouldn't be held to the same standard that is not evidence to the same standard as something that may be incredibly recent like a like a recent meta-analysis that looks at maybe 
a hundred studies with 50,000 different subjects. Right. Yeah. Going back to the um, efficacy versus effectiveness thing, because that's, that's where people get hung up when they say that the research isn't caught up because they're, they're doing an intervention and they feel that they've seen some effectiveness of this. They, they feel like they've used it with a client or a patient and it seemed to have a positive outcome and they look, maybe they, they try to look for research on it and there's just, it's just not there yet. So it hasn't established some level of efficacy because I, ideally we want both. You want efficacy because it shows that something has internal validity. It works, but then you also want to have some level of effectiveness so that you can actually utilize that in the real world. Right. But if something doesn't have efficacy, you're kind of, you know, just, shooting in the dark you don't really know you're just going to go back to that your, your mind playing tricks on you right you're going to think you see something and it starts to get into confirmation bias and and things like that so it does this sort of stuff does get a bit philosophical maybe that's where you know certain trainees or trainers get a little bit scared of this stuff you know because it, it does t- kind of get a bit philosophical in a sense uh, i think two words you use there that we didn't really define that kind of help the whole conversation and help better define efficacy versus effectiveness is uh, internal and external validity. Can you kind of just define those topics for everybody? Yeah, I'm just going to keep defining all these words because I know that they can be a little tricky. And, you know, I went through seven years of graduate, undergrad and graduate, and then eight years of clinical practice. And I still struggle sometimes with the definitions of all these words. So efficacy again is, does this thing that we're doing work in a controlled setting? So internal validity is basically asking if we can trust that whatever intervention we're doing actually caused this, this outcome. So efficacy and internal validity sort of go together. I'm going to just off the top of my head. If we're talking about like people foam roll to, you know, improve muscle length or something like that. Right. So internal validity would be, did foam rolling actually improve muscle length or range of motion or something like that? And in efficacy would be studying that in a very controlled manner. Then we get into effectiveness. So does this work in the real world? And you get into external validity. So would we get similar outcomes under different circumstances? So if that had efficacy, which it doesn't, but if it did, the next step would be, well, does that work with all different patient, uh, different people? Does that work with all different body parts? Does that work whether I do it for two minutes or 10 minutes? And then you start to get into the external validity of these sort of things. So it's a bit more pragmatic, like how can we ap- actually implement this? Whereas internal validity is a bit more like explanatory. It's a cause and effect relationship. So you want to establish that cause and effect relationship before you would start to implement it. So we want both, but you want efficacy ideally before you would start getting into it effectiveness it's also important to note it's not like a dichotomy there's a, yeah. a, a range where you can be in the middle ground and it's not going to be one or the other and there's going to be studies that kind of take a middle ground you'll see kind of randomized controlled trials that compare against you know the current best practice instead of a controlled group where there's still a lot of internal validity but they're kind of pushing towards that effective side um, so there is some middle ground there and I think it's also important that order that Eric keeps mentioning with efficacy becoming before effectiveness. I think sometimes people, you know, search out for effectiveness before something's been proven to be efficacious. A lot of these decisions that we're making are influencing people's lives directly. But I think very commonly we fall into a trap where we overestimate the benefits of what we're asking these people to do and underestimating the harm that 
our actions could potentially have right. on these people. Yeah. And again, going back to the barriers for physical activity and exercise, because we just established that 84% of people aren't making meeting those and that it's a, a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. So if the biggest complaint is that somebody doesn't have enough time. And, you know, you guys in particular, and myself included as a coach, we say to somebody, how much training are you going to allot per week? And they say, well, I can get in here for an hour, uh, three times a week. So you've got three hours with that person to make a difference in their life. Like, what are you going to do? You know, and we, we want to do things that are going back to the definitions, efficacious and effective. So it sounds kind of like semantics when we just talk about it on a podcast like this, but it is like super important to the decision-making process that we go through. Um, when we understand, you know, bird's eye view of what we're trying to do here, you know, like how can I, if I've got three hours with someone and I'm doing 20 minutes of stuff that has zero efficacy as a warm up, you know, I just, every time we train, I just took one third of that person's training time and just basically sort of threw it out the window because I thought it was effective. But if I, you know, studied a little bit harder and dug a little bit deeper, I would find that the efficacy, the internal validity of that intervention might have not even been there to begin with. You know, I would have been better off doing something else with that time. What are some of the real world consequences look like for potentially doing that in a physical therapy clinic? Yeah. So um, you can, we talked a little bit about this sort of stuff on, on the low back pain podcast when we started talking about nocebos or connecting dots that might not necessarily be connected. So if someone comes in, with low back pain. And I do an intervention that if I knew the literature has low efficacy, so doesn't seem to have a cause and effect relationship, or doesn't have good internal validity with helping to reduce that pain. But I do that intervention one or two times a week for a couple of weeks, and someone gets better, I'm going to look at that and say that this intervention was effective for reducing this person's pain. But that is sort of a lie, because in a controlled setting that has not been necessarily proven. I mean, it may have worked for that individual. It may have been something else that caused that individual to feel better. There's there's just so many variables that you can't confidently say that that's what happened. You can't find that signal and that noise. So if I had the efficacy first, I could say, well, you know, it makes sense to try this intervention out and and uh, let's let's go from there, you know? So that's, that's sort of the implementations. And in the case of something like low back pain, if I were to do something with low efficacy, and it helped get that person better. So then that person now thinks that that's an effective intervention. If they develop low back pain again, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to go back to, you know, possibly paying out of pocket or using time out of their day to receive this treatment that, you know, may not really do what we think it actually does. So that's why this stuff is, is pretty, pretty important. And so if, if we're looking at the same thing in the gym, Paul, I don't know what your th- your thoughts are if you necessarily agree but what i'm looking at when it comes to what we provide at at resilient right it's if somebody is not with us and they are training with a trainer and the trainer is not choosing efficacious methods of programming this person could potentially be turned off from training with us in the future training or lifting weights in general right yeah for sure and i mean we see this even oh we see this on all sorts of levels, right? I mean, from the simplest level of someone who's been doing something a certain way for a long time and may have been successful when they first started doing it because, you know, everyone's successful with 
absolutely anything when they first start training. <laughs> the newbie newbie gains are real. Yeah. But, you know, and then they come to us and, you know, their wheels are spinning and they've been doing things a certain way that might not be proven or be efficacious. And then they get stuck in those ways and they kind of are, you know, hesitant to change because that's what they've always done. And then we see this on the next level where people have been coached to do maybe we just had a technique podcast. So we'll use technique in this example, coach to do a movement a certain way and they just keep running into the wall. They're not progressing or they keep hurting themselves or whatever it may be. And they're, they, or actually it's a better example. What's a, this is a better example <laughs> uh, is they're doing a, a technique a certain way. And they've been told that that way is, is dangerous because of reasons that haven't been researched um, and haven't been shown to be efficacious. And then they're afraid to do that movement because they've been told they don't have the movement capabilities to do it or they're doing it incorrectly. And then on the third level is someone who's been scared away from training altogether because they worked with a coach that ran them down the wrong rabbit hole and completely disinterested them in the training. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's, those are two, potentially three really good examples. And that ties back to the brown sock, right? These people are attached to brown sock number one. And when presented with evidence that brown sock number one is not superior, right? They have to be willing to change their mind. And so in some cases, right, uh, like all the socks are the same, but the analogy holds true even if like the training that somebody had been following could be improved on, right? They have to be willing to sort of let go of what they had been doing to get where they are because that's not necessarily what's going to get them to where they're looking to go. Yeah, and coaches too. Like if I if I think any of us can say if we look back on what we were doing five or ten years ago, we'd laugh because I know for sure that I was doing things that now I would be ashamed of. So it's kind of our duty to try and be – you know, less wrong each day because, you know, I'm hoping in 10 years I look back at what I'm doing now and and laugh at that because we are continuing to advance our knowledge and continuing to question our beliefs and question what we're doing. And when we're introduced with new information, being able to put that into our current principles and adjust accordingly and having kind of like virtue in our pursuit for knowledge and just not just adopting knowledge without checking it out first yourself. Yeah, I think you have to sort of and we sort of embrace that that aspect to this because it's it's not that science has all the answers because science does not have all the answers and it's constantly evolving and it's open to its own biases for sure. But I think if you sort of try to be less wrong constantly, you will find that you have more confidence in what you're doing. And to what you're saying, Paul, you sort of naturally evolve with science instead of like always trying to stay ahead of it, you know, and that starts to get into like doing things just because they're trendy or because they're kind of like the new thing or the shiny, you know, going after the shiny new object sort of stuff. Right. So yeah, I like that. Yeah. What works is usually boring, unfortunately. Yeah. But, 
I, I know. I hear that too. And you know, it's just like always like, you got to know the basics. Now we, we sound like old coaches, I think. So, Cause we're like telling all the other coaches and therapists and stuff to just get really good at the basics, but people don't respect the basics enough. And that doesn't mean that it has to be boring. I mean, you guys, you know, make things fun, right? I mean, nobody that I know, any client resilient has been like, yeah, you know, I've had great results, but it's just, it's just so boring. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> it becomes fun in all the other aspects because we are humans. So it's not like we're just, you know, doing an input and an output, which is kind of probably what it sounds like with this conversation, but you do the stuff that has good efficacy, even if it's boring and then you make it fun and engaging in other ways, you know, well, like making progress, I think. Yeah. Progress is definitely one way, but it doesn't get likes on the gram though. How, how are you going to get all the likes and follows? I guess I don't care about that. <laughs> we, need, we need props and the stuff that no one's ever seen before to yeah. get the likes. You just need to get some sick screenshots of your leg veins while you're squatting 605 or whatever it was. <laughs> That's right. Well, I think Ryan brought up the, the real thing there is progress. Is that's, that's really going to be what makes people buy in in the long run. And uh, that's something that we've kind of talked about in the past. You can make progress with things that aren't, that don't have efficacy though. It's like you said, the newbie gains, right? So somebody can go to a trainer and do a bunch of stuff that, you know, to us might look kind of silly or we might at least think there's a little bit of a better way, but they get results out of it. And so that feeds back into that loop of like, this must be great. And then you present to them with the facts that actually this isn't the best way to do this. And it goes back to the brown sock thing, right? So, you know, progress for, I think, more advanced trainers, you know, which we definitely have trainees that are more advanced when they see progress, they really get, you know, we really know it's because of whatever system we've put in place. But when it comes to some of the the newbie stuff, you know, you can get progress, whether you're doing things with good efficacy slash effectiveness or not sometimes, you know. So again, knowing, knowing the literature gives us more confidence that these aren't just newbie gains, but they're going to continue to see progress beyond that, right? Yeah. And oftentimes I hear arguments from other trainers saying like, hey, if it, if it works, it works. Progress is progress. Like, can't argue with progress. And then you may bring up the conversation of, well, there might be a better way to do it. And then they get into, oh, how, how do you know there's a better way to do it? And this is how we do yeah. the, the yeah. research. <laughs> if it works, is where, if it works, it works is like the the anti like science. That's I mean that's the rickety ship guy, right? He got across. Sh- he got across. So if it worked, it yeah. worked. You know, yeah, well, you're you're kind of an asshole though, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so and uh, I don't know. I guess it's what you put into it, though. You know, we've kind of we're passionate about this stuff and, you know, we use our free time to to do these sort of things. So I guess that's part of it, too. And to continue on what you were saying about making progress, I think that's a really good point that I think the easy example of is like a 14 year old, right? They're going to get stronger no matter what. Yeah, they do, just cause that's the, spe- the, the speed camps. That's a perfect example, right? You see all the speed camps <laughs> and like every yeah. 14, 15 year old is like, you know, burn and do through ladder drills and, and, and getting faster and buffer, but they're just hormonal teenagers <laughs> that are responding, to, you know, they're primed to respond to any input. Right. And then they go to like their D one college and the coaches, you know, the coaches there are just gonna just hopefully probably uh, just gut that and, and have to start over with the basics, you know? So. And I think that that's where you, we can kind of highlight what we do as being different where it's like, how many people can you help or for how long can you help them? 
right? It's like how many people can make progress in their first few months in the gym. I've seen clients doing a lot of things that I didn't agree with who made a lot of progress those first few months. But at what point does that trainer then lose the ability to help them? So again, referencing back to the rickety ships, like you can be on a rickety ship and not know it and get across the Atlantic a few times, but eventually, you know, the statistics aren't in your favor. And so the more you can stick to the both the efficacious and the effectiveness, right? So it's like, if we can focus on that stuff, we're just able to help people more consistently over longer periods of time. You know, how many other places could a guy like Carlos go for programming and be able to make progress? Like the, it's pretty that's small. A, you know, that's that, what you just touched on, Ryan. That's a good question I'd like to ask you guys because if someone comes into me uh, for physical therapy, and a lot of this happens a lot. They, they're requesting an intervention that might not have great efficacy. Maybe they know somebody that found it to be effective, or maybe they've had it in the past. For whatever reason, they want to do something that I might not typically do. I kind of have to either educate around that and see if I can maybe get a change in their belief structure on, on what else we might want to do. Or I have to give a little bit, I'll do a little bit of that and let's do a little bit of, of this stuff that I find to be um, useful. So I, I kind of dance around that stuff all the time. But if you guys get, and I know this happens, you get new clients in and they want to, you know, they want to spend 30 minutes foam rolling or doing all this other sort of stuff that you might not normally program in because you don't think that the efficacy and effectiveness is there. You know, what, the, what those conversations look like. Cause that's the humanistic part of this whole thing. Yeah, it's a very similar situation where, you you need to educate them, but you can't just, you know, tell them they're wrong off their bat and and like just throw it in their face and be like, Oh, the research says this, you're you're wrong because then they'll just leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you, you you do have to give in and give in a little bit and kind of let them do the things they believe they need to do and then add in the things that you know they need to do and slowly start to wean them off those things that might not be effective or efficacious and start to kind of educate them slowly and do it by example where, you know, we maybe in the foam rolling example, they let them say, hey, come in early, do your foam rolling before the session starts on your own time. And then what's implement this new warm up and see how you feel and they feel pretty good. Maybe we get them to foam roll five minutes less and they're like, oh man, I still feel good. And eventually they're not foam rolling at all. And their warm ups down to just five minutes so they can spend the next 55 minutes working out. But you do have to, you know, give a little at the beginning. And like we've talked about this whole episode is it really comes back to lowering the barrier of fitness and keeping adherence high. So if the person doesn't enjoy what they're doing, they're not going to adhere to it. So there's got to be some enjoyment there. So meeting the client in the middle and over time, educating them on, you know, these topics, you know, this podcast will probably serve that purpose. in in some cases, <laughs> one of the things that you do at resilient that I like is having some of the more senior members serve almost as a mentor to the, to the newer members. Cause there's a certain amount of social learning that occurs with that. Right. So if someone comes in and they want to do 30 minutes of, of foam rolling and then they realize that, you know, nobody else, you know, on the other members or especially the senior members are, are necessarily doing that and they're, they're surviving, <laughs> they're doing just fine, <laughs> you know, and they're making progress. Uh, they're going to learn from that. And, and we don't get as much of those interactions in the, in the clinic due to like HIPAA reasons and stuff, but our clinic is, 
is pretty open. So, you know, we do have somebody that this happens fairly often where somebody, you know, in their thirties is fearful of lifting something from the floor because things can make their back worse. But there's a 50, 60 year old, 70 year old next to them picking up 30, 40, 50 pounds, you know, piece of cake. So there's a little bit of social learning that occurs there and that really helps refrain beliefs. So I, I, I love the, the uh, mentorship idea there. Cause I think that that can get over some of like the stuff that might not have the efficacy or the effectiveness, but it's not coming from, from you guys too. They're, they're learning that through the experience. There's a lot of really strong people that work out with us. And there's a lot of people when a new client comes in, there's almost always someone that has kind of done what they're after. They have like similar goals and have completed them and have gone through that journey and they can kind of see what they're doing um, and how they're training and how it's worked for them. And they're much more likely to buy in when everyone else is around them is, you know, kind of training hard and hitting the big movements and spending their time, you know, pushing adaptation instead of, laying on the full floor, rolling in circles. I think they also get to see what is in their future. If they stay consistent and they work hard, they can see how strong the people around them are and know that it's it's going to be accessible to them as long as, again, they, they put the effort in. And that's it for part one of our Effectiveness versus Efficacy podcast. This is a topic that we feel so strongly about that we ended up rambling on for about two hours and had to break it up into two parts. So be sure to join us next week as we continue this discussion.